One of the key passages in the Old Testament is in Jeremiah chapter 9. It says, let not the wise boast in their wisdom, let not the strong boast in their strength, let not the rich boast in their riches. Let the one who boasts boast in this, that they understand and know God. I am the Lord. And the key here is with this word know. It is very definitely, it's, it's not simply to know about, it's to know, it's to experience. Uh, the word that's used to know in Hebrew uh, here in Jeremiah 9 is the Hebrew word yada. It's the same word that we find in Genesis chapter 4 where it says, Adam knew Eve and she conceived. So obviously this is not a, uh, a detached, uh, dry kind of uh, information. This, is, this idea of yada implies uh, really a relationship. It implies intimacy. It implies depth. And this is what we're trying to unpack in this series. So we see this also in the contrast between the way Hebrews knew something and the way the Greeks knew something. So the Greeks were philosophers. They were all about ideas. They were, they were all about the life of the mind. And so uh, for them, it was possible to, to know something without actually applying it, which we see happening today. It's very possible uh, to have a class at the university on ethics that's taught by a professor who um, he or she may have a Ph.D. in ethics but be very unethical in their behavior. Okay, so that's, that's something that would be okay uh, with a Greek understanding of knowing. It would not be okay with a Hebrew understanding of knowing. For a Hebrew, the goal with knowledge is actually, um, at, well, application is implied. It, with, with a Hebrew uh, understanding, with a Jewish understanding, you weren't after being smart. It wasn't about uh, assembling degrees or having a high IQ. You could have all of that and be a fool because you were not applying what you know. And so for the Hebrew understanding of knowing, it's not simply information. It implies a connection. It implies an embodiment of that information. And as we are thinking in this series, um, we're, we're saying, how do we know God? Not in a Greek sense. Not, not a list of attributes of God, right? This isn't about more head knowledge about God. This is how in a Jewish sense, in a Hebrew sense, how in an embodied sense can I know God? Can I, can I rest more fully in him? Come more, more deeply into his presence. Experience God. That is what we're after. Now, I, I want to be clear, this embodiment knowledge, this Hebrew knowledge, is not down on head knowledge. So, uh, so as we talk about how do we come more fully into God's presence, how do we hear from God, how do we experience God, that's never divorced from uh, all that God reveals in a, in a more cognitive sense about who he is in the Bible. But uh, there is a sense in which we're not trying to, to, you know, better understand in a systematic theology way some of the attributes of God. 
we want to know God in a more transformative way, in a more personal way. And uh, to do that uh, today, we are going to be back in the book of Exodus, uh, which is one of my favorite Old Testament books. Exodus is the second book in the Bible. Uh, it's, it's got great stories and great theology. You know, you got um, uh, the call of Moses, and then you got uh, uh, Moses and Pharaoh having their little dust up, and you got the ten plagues, and then you got uh, the Passover event, and you've got the parting of the Red Sea, and you got going to Mount Sinai. There's just a lot in the book of Exodus. And last week, Anson got us started uh, by uh, looking at the call of God to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. The first half of the book of Exodus is all about getting the Jews out of Egypt. The second half, which is where we're going today, uh, it picks up uh, Exodus chapter 19 is where the second half begins. And this is all about um, the relationship that God is going to have with the Jews. This is about defining the covenant. This is about going more deeply um, into the way God and his people will relate. And we're looking at this because we want to better understand how we have this uh, relationship with God. So uh, it's a long section of scripture. I'm going to walk us through it. Exodus 19, so the people have uh, come back to the bottom of the mountain of Sinai. That's where they're gathered. It says, and Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, This is what you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel. You yourself have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I cared for you, carried you on wings of eagles, and brought you to myself. Huge event, the Exodus, getting them out of there. God is, the, the Jews were, had been for 400 years in captivity, they're sort of, they don't know God in the way that they had when this captivity had started. And so God has revealed himself through a lot of, of acts. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons uh, of Israel. So, Moses is, God is giving to Moses directions that he is to carry to the people. And the people are being called, God's people, um, the call of Abraham, the covenant relationship that God establishes with Abraham. It's getting, you know, sort of updated here uh, at Mount Sinai. And um, the people, the Jewish people are to be priests in a sense in which they are, they are advocating for everyone else. The prophet is God. Prophet represents God's voice to the people. The priest represents the people back to God. And, and, and God is inviting the Jews to be those people. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all the words which the Lord had commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. <laughs> Famous last words. Uh, and Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. So Moses says, this is to the people. This is what God says. You want to be his people. People say, yeah, we're in. Let's do this. Then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud so that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also trust in you forever. So the, uh, the image of a cloud 
is common throughout the Bible. God tends to appear in a cloud. Jesus will return uh, among the clouds. There's a sense in which clouds uh, represent the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God. So uh, then Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. The Lord also said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and have them wash their garments and have them ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. So he says, get ready, take this seriously, you know, change your clothes. Uh, he's going to have other uh, requirements for them. Uh, but you shall set boundaries for the people all around saying, beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall, shall certainly be put to death. And here's one of the things we're going to start to see about entering into a relationship with God, coming into God's presence, it's not something that can be done uh, flippantly. Uh, I, would, I, I may use the word casually. I think we can be in one sense uh, relaxed in the presence of God. There's other senses in which we're going to see we need to be uh, alert and even fearful is a word that's used. But it never flippant. And so uh, God is holy, we are not, and the people can't be uh, on the mountain if God is going to come descend onto the mountain because his holiness would consume them. No hand shall touch him, uh, but he shall certainly be stoned or shot through. Whether animal or person, the violator shall not live. If you're on the mountain, God says, when I show up, um, then you will not live. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they shall come up. Uh, to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people and they washed their garments. He also said to them, be, uh, said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. Okay, don't wash your clothes. Don't have sex. Get ready. Uh, enter into a time of reflection and preparation. So it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Um, and Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. There's an ongoing theme about God and fire. So last week, Exodus 3, the burning bush. Now we've got a whole mountain on fire. Uh, Elijah's going to call fire out of heaven. Uh, next week, Anson's going to take us to Acts 2 and the, the Pentecost. And there the, there's, uh, when the Holy Spirit comes, you know, there's flames over their head. So there's a, there's a common theme here. Uh, smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the entire mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. Then the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, go down, warn the people, so that they do not break through to the Lord to stare. Okay, again, this is not flippant. This is not, you know, something to just sort of casually watch like you're watching something on TV, right? They're not to be voyeuristic in this sense. What does God look like? What is he doing? Um, most of them aren't going to go close. I mean, they're going to say to Moses after this, like, we don't want to ever do that again. 
you go meet with God, we want to stay away, scares us silly. Um, but he's, and of course, not too long after this, Moses is going to go up the mountain again, and this time he's going to get the Ten Commandments, and during that time he's meeting with God. It's not just the Ten Commandments, there's more that, that happens that he gets, but during that time is when they're going to, <laughs> they're going to violate uh, all the, the covenant that they have agreed to, that Aaron's going to make a golden calf and all this. So there's just a little bit of foreshadowing here. You know, tell them not to come on, take this seriously. Um, many of them will perish. And have the priests who approach the Lord consecrate themselves or else the Lord will break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to the Mount, Mount Sinai for you warned us, saying set boundaries around the mountain and consecrate it. Moses is pretty sure, and this time he's right, that they won't violate that. Then the Lord said to him, go down and come up again, you and Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up the Lord, or he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. So um, there's, uh, <laughs> there's just a number of things that are going on here, but I, I want today, I want, I want to set two ideas in front of you, and uh, I, I think it probably sort of jumps out of this passage, um, that, that God is manifesting his presence, but it is so overwhelming uh, that, that he's provided a lot of warnings and boundaries on how this is going to happen. And he's in a dense cloud, he's, he's being, you know, sort of hidden by the cloud uh, so that they don't see him directly. Um, we know that, that uh, when people are trying to see God or when they come more fully into God's presence, this, uh, Moses is going to be hidden in the cleft of the rock when, he, when God passes by in Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah gets called into the throne room in Isaiah 6. He's, you know, he's there in heaven uh, in, the, in the presence of God and his words are, woe, woe to me, you know, I'm going to perish, I can't do this. There's, there's just an ongoing message that we get, that, that God is holy and we are broken. And God's holiness is so amazing and he's so good and it's so uh, profoundly good in a powerful way that we can't even sort of stand in the presence of it. So when, when there's, a, there's some comparison here, we can just sort of think this through. When, when angels show up, right, the, the first thing they're always saying is fear not. Because the people are overwhelmed by the, by the presence of the angels. The angels are good. They're totally good. And that is overwhelming to us. But when the angels are in the presence of God, again Isaiah 6, they cover their face. They cannot fully be in the presence of God without being shielded in some way. Because he is so powerfully good. And there's a passage uh, also in Isaiah um, and it, uh, it, it says that, uh, it says, Isaiah 24, 23, that the moon is confounded and the sun ashamed when the Lord of hosts reigns. So the sun, <laughs> the brilliance of the sun, uh, the sun is intimidated by the glory and the presence of God. I mean, this is just an ongoing theme. So the one hand, we're, we're getting one of the messages here is that God is inviting the people into his presence, but it is, but, but there's some limits to 
to how that is going to unfold. Uh, and a second thing that we need to see and understand about all this is that uh, we should be cultivating uh, not simply awe, but there is a sense in which we are to have a holy fear of God. Now, Old Testament and New Testament are different. Uh, and in Christ, we, we are, you know, we are uh, identifying with him. And so we can, we can draw into the presence of God uh, through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we have been made righteous through Christ. So uh, there's a sense in which we're good. But there's a sense in which, and I have struggled in the past, uh, will struggle again, because I don't completely understand it. There's a sense in which, although we are invited into an intimacy with, with God that is, that is captured in the word Abba, when, when Jesus teaches the disciples to pray, he says, pray this way. Uh, our Father who art in heaven, and uses the word Abba. It means dad. It's not, not quite as uh, familiar as daddy, but it goes in that direction. And so there's, a, there's a, an intimacy, right? There's a closeness. There's a love relationship. And there's a, an ability to relax there. Um, but at the same time, um, we are to also have not simply a healthy respect for God, which is how some understand the passages about, you know, fearing God. And we're told to fear God in the New Testament as well. Uh, don't let he who uh, fears, don't fear those who can destroy your body, and, uh, but, but can't destroy your soul. Instead, Jesus says, Matthew 10, 28, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. There's a sense in which we are to fear God. And, and uh, how we hold those things together is a challenge so what I want to do to sort of set us up and to head us into communion, what I want to do is read you this brilliant passage out of um, uh, The Silver Chair, one of the books of the Chronicles of Narnia, where, where C.S. Lewis, who writes these books, has Jesus, the Christ figure in these books, be a lion. That at one time is this wonderful lion who the, the kids can sort of rest on him and, and grab a hold of his mane and, and be safe in his presence, but are also uh, there aware that he's never safe. So I'm going to read this passage. This is when Lucy, uh, who's been pulled into uh, who's been pulled into Narnia, so it's a completely different world. She is meeting Aslan for the first time. She's terribly thirsty. And she's now heard a stream that is running. And so she, she's, she's so thankful she's going to be able to go and get a drink. But then uh, she finds that her way to the stream is blocked by this lion. So I pick up the conversation here in the middle. Are you not thirsty, said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I uh, could I, would, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might just as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will, will you promise not to... Uh, to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. 
Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step closer. Do you, do you eat girls? She said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. He didn't say this as if he were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if he were angry. He just said it. I daren't come then, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. There is no other stream. We are thirsty for Christ. We are thirsty for Christ, not information about Christ, but Christ himself. And he is both overwhelmingly holy with a white-hot goodness that we cannot comprehend, and he is also gracious and welcoming to all who approach him in meekness, awe, and dare I say it, even a little fear. Heavenly Father, may we not simply know more about you today, but draw more fully into your transforming presence. Come, Holy Spirit, guide and direct us, meet with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.